0: to you today here and online, and An Alma is, winter is gone. Aren't you glad of that? <laughs> you know, one of the things that I dislike about winter, because I do like a few things about it. You don't want to get in trouble with God by not liking what He's doing. <clears throat> it's light deprivation. I'm sure there's some of you here that uh, suffer from that, where it's gray, it's dark. It, Five in the morning, it's dark at four in the afternoon. I mean, it's just total darkness. And the Bible says that we are not to love the darkness, All right? We are to love the light more than the darkness. So those who suffer from light deprivation, it creates mood swings and can give us trouble. Well, over the last 14 months, to add to those winter months difficulties, we added something called touch starvation or touch starvation deprivation. The frontal orbital cortex up in here in the front, right over your eyebrows is where your emotions are driven in the brain. And what we found was loneliness, depression, emptiness, fear, worry, doubt, all being created, why? Because we couldn't be together. I know all of you felt that at some level. Because touch is important. And that's why our second promise that we're looking at in our series on promises is this. God says, if you come near to God, he will come near to you. Why? Because touch is important to God. Spiritual touch. Think about it for a minute. Jesus put some mud together, wet it, and touched the man's eyes, and his eyes were open. He put his finger in a guy's ear, and he touched him, and the guy was able to hear. The leper came to him, and he touched him, and his leprosy was gone. Remember when he touched the widow's son at his funeral, and the young man was raised from the dead? Or how about in Luke chapter 8, where Jesus is walking through a crowd, disciples are with him, lots of people gathered around him and suddenly he stops and he says, who touched me? Because I felt power go out from me when I was touched. And then lastly, when Jesus is questioned by some of the disciples as to whether this is real or not and Thomas is in the room when Jesus shows up and what does Jesus say? Touch me and see. There is a spiritual touch that our hearts long for. It's that that closeness to God that we need that he offers us when we've accepted Christ, when we've been filled with his spirit, then he is there for you to receive that spiritual touch that you need. Because he said, if you come near to me, I will come near to you. James captures that in the fourth chapter of his book, and he kind of gives this whole category of how we get to that point of being close to God. Listen to this, James 4, starting in verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. So there's several things that James is saying That prepare us for the promise. The promise that if we come near to him, he will come near to us. The first is found in that fourth verse where he says that enmity against God is when you have friendship with the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus had said we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And we need to understand that distinction. Why? Because The ruler of this world is the evil one. The ruler of all creation is our God. And so even the evil one is under our God. And we cannot straddle a line sometimes living in the world and being of it and sometimes being with God. We need to make a choice between the two. You're either touched by God or you're touched by evil. And it's up to you to make that choice. James says, friend of the world, enemy of God. Well, how do you accomplish that? How do you make these decisions and choices when you're having to live in this world that is opposed to what you and I believe? You need what we've talked about before, a biblical world and life view. What that means is the Bible becomes the defining ethical standard for every choice you make. If you're about to make a choice, be it small or large, and you can take that thought and you bring it captive to the word of God, then God's ethical standard, his perfection, his authoritative word that is without error will tell you exactly what you should do. Or it will give you case law to help you understand what you should do. And that's why we must be driven to this ultimate authority in order to protect ourselves from the thinking of the world. Every choice should be based upon the Word of God. Every choice. Now, how do you do that? It's obvious. You need to know the Word of God. You need to spend time in God's Word to understand the character of God. And and when you are getting to know him, and all of us still are, because his revelation is unending, none of us knows everything about God. But every day when I open the scriptures and I study them, I realize, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And it's addressing and building a standard from me so that my behavior, my morality, will be based on the ethic which is the design that God has for me. Now, when I have that, then I know that I'm near to him and he'll come near to me. If you accept the world's definition of you, then you're in opposition. If you're driven by what the world says, and you do what the world tells you to do, and it is opposed to the scriptures, then you're a friend of the world. But if... Being a follower of Christ, you are in the world and you have a position of influence, then you need to take advantage of that. And even those of us who don't have positions of influence, we still need to let the world know what we believe. Now, some of you, not all of you, follow uh, the sport of basketball. I love basketball. I like to watch it in college. I like to watch the pros. And there's one professional ball player that I admire, His name is Steph Curry. He's not a big guy. Plays for a team that is okay, but not the greatest team. But there's just something about him. When he opened up his Twitter account, the first thing he did to define himself, believer. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, he's in a world that is not filled with Christians. There are many who are playing that sport, but he's one who has taken the lead because there's just something unique about him. He said his mother would wake him every morning and they'd have devotions before he would go to school. But it wasn't until he was in the eighth grade that he became a follower of Christ. When he plays, he has written on his shoes that he can do all things, and he writes, Through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. Because he wants the world to know that this is not as important, this game that I am playing, as my relationship with Jesus Christ is. Here's what he said. My faith is about the personal relationship more so than following a certain religious tradition or religious practice. I challenge you to make sure you're feeding your spirit With the right things versus what the world's throwing at us. And this is a constant battle. Recently, he did what only a few have done. He scored 62 points in one game. And afterwards, he posted, In Jesus' name I play, which was the little wristlet that he was wearing through the whole game. I mean, maybe if everybody wore those, everybody'd score that. I have no idea. But you see, he's making a statement. And he's not afraid to make the statement. He's choosing the Lord's way in the midst of the world, and he's using his influence for Christ. He's not using it for any other reason. He and I have made one choice that is similar. Listen to this carefully. I have chosen to be positionally correct because I choose Scripture. I choose God. And I do that with love and compassion for all. And then I know that I'm near God because God is a God of compassion. He's a God of love. But he's also a God of truth and absolutes. And you can't trade those off against each other. He truthfully loves. He truthfully cares for all of us. And the battle that we're in, we need not be afraid of. Paul, in writing... To Timothy, in the second letter, in the seventh verse, I'm taking this from the New King James. He says, You were not given the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Now think about this for a minute. Power is the Holy Spirit. He said, I will give you power from on high. Jesus promised the disciples. Secondly, love... For God so loved the world. The Father loved the world. So the power of the Spirit, the love of the Father, and didn't Paul say, have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So the power and the love and the mind, the Trinity is in us. What do we have to fear? There is nothing that you need to fear. Because... We are the chosen ones of God. He has called us into relationship with himself. And in this relationship, we can stay near him so that we feel that protection. We know we have it, but it takes work. It's not an easy task to accomplish. During World War II, Winston Churchill, in his memoirs called The Gathering Storm, said this, He said a lot of big, heavy words, but I'll break it down for you. Virtuous motives restrained by inertia and timidity are no match for armed and resolute wickedness. Here's what he's saying. You know, you may want to do well, and that's great, but if you're not moving toward that, if you're inert, you're still, there's no movement in in your faith, you're not proceeding toward that relationship with God, or if you're timid, if you have fear, even though God says you shouldn't have fear, if you have those and that's you, you are no match for the evil one because the evil one is armed and he is resolutely wicked. That's who he is. That's our enemy. We war not against flesh and blood against each other. We're warring against powers and principalities which forces me into wanting this promise of God. I want to be close to him so that he'll be close to me. I need that. God is a jealous God. James 4, just the last part of the fifth verse He says, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? Well, first of all, I think, at least in my upbringing, jealousy meant something that it really doesn't mean. What what envy is, is when I want something you have. I'm not jealous for you. I'm envious of you. I want something you have. Jealousy is when I have something that I don't want to give up. I don't want to get rid of it. I want to hold on to it. I'm jealous for it. I'm a jealous husband. I do not want anyone to take my wife from me. God gave her to me, so I'm jealous for her. God is jealous for you and for me. He placed his spirit in you, and he's jealous for that spirit to be allowed to work in you. He doesn't want you to have that spirit just live there and do nothing. It's up to you. So he jealously longs for you to call upon the spirit and say, Spirit, draw me near to the Father. Because then I know he'll come near to me. And if he's near me, I'm okay, no matter what the circumstance may be. I'm okay because I'm in the hands of Almighty God, the creator of the universe. What a great promise to hold on to. God will give you strength when it's time to take a stand. There's a story in the Bible about the prophet Elijah. Elijah lived during the terrible reign in Israel of a wicked king, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel. And they had 500 prophets of Baal. And so it was time for Elijah to take a stand. He was tired of all this that was going on. And here's what he offered. He said, all right, Ahab, bring your 500 prophets of Baal, and I'll come with my prophets, and we'll meet on Mount Carmel. And there we will both offer sacrifices to our gods. And whoever's God comes down and consumes the sacrifice, that is the God we will worship. So they all came to Mount Carmel and the Baal worshipers built this altar to Baal and they sacrificed on it and they cried to him all day long. And here's what Elijah says at noon since they've been going all morning and nothing's happened. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, shout louder, he said, surely he's a God Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. I mean, this is a brave statement for a guy to make. He's challenging someone else's God. But then you know what he does? He puts his offering together and he says to his servants, we built a moat around the offering. I want you to fill that moat with water. Pour water over everything. Three times do it. And they were using these jars like the ones that Jesus later would use when he turned the water into wine. Probably about that tall and about that big around. I mean, everything was soaked. Maybe you remember what happened. The fire of God came down and consumed everything. The water, the rocks, the wood, the offering. It was all gone. (laughs) So guess who's God? One. You see, when you take a stand for God... You may or may not see the immediate victory, but the victory is yours in Christ Jesus. So we're more than conquerors in him, but we need to stay near him. He cannot be a once a week God. He cannot be someone that we pray to occasionally or only when we eat. He needs to be a God that's so involved in your life. His power always has a purpose for you, And his promises are always tied to the purpose. I'll say it again. His power is always about your purpose. And his promises help that purpose. They're there for you. They're tied into that. So what's your purpose? And I'm talking about a purpose that goes beyond glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Certainly, that is what we are to do ultimately. But there's another purpose That God has given us. A great pastor of the last century said this The true characteristic blessing of the gospel is the gift of a new power to a sinful, weak world, a power which makes the feeble strong and the strongest as an angel of God. He continues I don't know what Christianity means unless it means that you and I are forgiven for a purpose. The purpose being that we are filled with all the strength and all the righteousness and the supernatural life granted us by the Son of God. That's our purpose. We have all of this available to us. I don't think the church with a big C is taking advantage of it as we should. I think we need to wake up. We need to draw closer to God so that he will come closer to us. So how do we do that? Verses seven and eight, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you, come near to God, and he will come near to you. So there are two things that James says are essential to our ability to make this happen. Submit yourself to God. The word submit in Hebrew means to arrange under. That means humble yourself. You and I are children of God. None of us is any better than the other. Some may know more, but that doesn't make them better. Some may live closer to God, doesn't make them better. We're all equal in the presence of God. But we need to humble ourselves because God lifts up the humble. But he humbles those who try to lift themselves up. So when you come... To a crossroad of submit to God, which is humble yourself, or lift yourself up. What are you going to do? Years and years and years ago, there was a great baseball player by the name of Yogi Bear. and from his life after many many years with the New York Yankees as a catcher, eighteen years as an all-star, he created something called Yogiisms. You should look them up. One of them I remember was. That's like deja vu all over again. I mean, did you get that? That's a double statement there. But he said this. If you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) If you come to a fork in the road, take it. Yeah, if you come to a fork in the road that is humility or self. Humility is the way to go. Humble yourself. You're not as good as you thought you were. My brother once was playing golf with a a theologian, and my brother considered himself a good golfer, and he hit a bad, bad ball, and so he slung his iron. And the other guy looked at him and said, Richard, you're not that good. (laughs) You know, humble yourself before the Lord. Now, when you are humble before the Lord, then you're already closer to him. Because he loves us to acknowledge who he is and the power that he's given us. The spirit lives within me and the spirit is saying to me, humble yourself. You're not as good as you think you are, but you're perfect in the father's eye. Because he has cleansed you and made you everything he wants you to be. Resist the devil. Now the devil has allurements in the world. He'll offer you flattering opportunities. He will entice you to go in a direction just a little bit off-center. And he will trap you in those allurements in order to pull you further and further into the world, thus further and further away from that nearness to God. That's, That's his job. And he is a formidable foe. Like Churchill said, he is a powerful person. He's been created by God. He's not like us. He's not made in the image of God. He's an angelic being. But he's going to come after you, and you need to learn how to resist him. And the best way to resist him is to be militant, it's to be like you are a soldier of God, which you are. And that's to just speak directly. And say, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. And turn and walk away. There's a story of a Pentecostal preacher who lived from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. His name was Smith Wigglesworth. What a great name. He was so close to God. He lived in that nearness all the time. And he tells the story. He says, one night I was asleep. And he said, I woke up in the middle of the night because something was bothering me. And I looked in the corner and he said, there was Satan sitting in the corner of my bedroom. Now, Smith was not arrogant in this. He was assured. Because he lived in this closeness with God, even though the evil one, the head of the dominions of Satan, was sitting there He said, I looked at him and said, oh, it's only you. And I went back to sleep. I don't want to have to deal with that personally. I don't know about you. I don't think I'm important enough for him to do that. But I know this. That's what it means to resist the devil. And, And here's what Wigglesworth said. He said, the power of the new life is greater than the power of the old life. So the power the world says it wants to give you is not as strong as the power that God will give you. So if you will resist him, then you will receive the divine transforming touch of God. In the Old Testament, they would bring their offerings to the outer court, and the priests were there, and they would make the offerings, and then one would go into the holy place, and there where the candelabra were, and the showbread, and all of the wonderful things, the anointing, the spirit would come, and and they would offer it there, but nobody was allowed into the Holy of Holies till later in the tabernacle when once a year that was allowed. Well, when Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave, the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies split open, which meant we now have access to God. Now, here's the thing, to draw near to God. I don't want to be an outer court Christian. I don't want someone else offering my sacrifices to god i want to offer my own well you and i are called a priesthood of believers so we have the right then to go right in to the holy of holies and going into that holy place we receive that nearness of god that touch of god that spiritual awareness of his power you pray your way into his presence you humble yourself You submit to him. You leave the devil in the dust. That's God's call to you if you want to get close to him. He wants to touch you in your heart today. He wants to come near you, every single one of you, and touch you through his spirit. The touch of God began your life. Remember Michelangelo's famous work in the Sistine Chapel showing that touch that was about to give life to Adam. It brought life to you and to me. The touch of God sustains your life. Never again need you suffer from touch deprivation because God wants to be near you. So come near to God, and he will come near to you. Let's pray. Lord, we are seeking your presence. Thank you that you have made a way that we might be in that presence. You are near us every day. You are in us. So help us, Jesus, to recognize your presence, to live according to your word, and to be in conversation with you day in and day out. For we know this, Lord, you made a promise to us. You promised if we would come near to you, you would be near us. So, Lord, help us to this end that we may be near you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.